Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. In 2012, an article in The Atlantic was being widely shared among my friends. It was called, Why Women Still Can't Have It All. And it was by a Princeton professor named Anne-Marie Slaughter. And I remember reading it several times and hearing from other full-time moms that were friends of mine how validated they felt in their choice to stay home with kids. Several months later, my husband and I went to dinner with some of his grad school friends. And the women there, who were mothers who worked outside the home, were also talking about the article, but with a lot of consternation and a feeling of a bit having been betrayed. And the article was a big deal in my different friend circles, and it turned out it was a big deal all over the country. It turned out to be one of the most widely read pieces ever published by The Atlantic. And the author, Anne-Marie Slaughter, continued engaging in the national conversation on the topic of work-life balance after the publication of the article, and she eventually published a book called Unfinished Business, Women, Men, Work, Family, in 2015. And this is the book that we read for today's episode, and I'm so excited to discuss it with my reading partner, Nyland McBain. Welcome, Nyland. Hi, Amy. Happy to be here. Oh, thanks so much for being here. I'm, I'm so excited to talk about this with you. I always begin episodes by talking about how I know each reading partner, and I was reflecting on this. Nyland and I are, are friends now. We are neighbors and our kids are friends and we've had some fun adventures. But I was just thinking, when did I first hear your name, Nyland? And I remember it was in 2012 and you had published an article that I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was kind of a transcription of a presentation that you did. And it was called To Do the Business of the Church, a Cooperative Paradigm for Examining Gendered Participation Within Church Organizational Structure. And I did have, <laughs> I have to, to look up the title. Now. Yes. <laughs> oh, don't laugh at it because I actually, I went back through my email actually, and I was thinking, when did I first read that? And it was in 2012. And I forwarded that article to just about everyone I knew. And I read some emails from 2012 when we were all reading it. And I had forgotten this, but I wrote in some emails things like my sister sobbed all the way through that article. Oh, wow. And like I had never read anything yet where I personally, me, where I had felt seen and understood. I I was so, so lonely at that time in my experience in our in our church, in our, our common faith. And you wrote about women's pain. That was the first thing you wrote about before getting into like, okay, here, here are some things that we can do. But you really validated women's pain. And I was really glad that I went back and read that article again. And I really hadn't remembered what a big deal it was to me. So mm. I've never thanked you for that, Nyland. Well, thank <laughs> you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. I, I mean, the reason I laugh is because I think the title kind of just reflects my lack of confidence in an academic conference setting, right? This was, a, <laughs> this was an academic conference where I was actually asked to give that talk. And I think I thought the more fancy words I put in the title... <laughs> <laughs> the less likely people were going to be to see right through me. Um, but yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that. And it, it was a, certainly a turning point for me personally to uh, to be able to present the thoughts in that in that atmosphere. Well, it was really, really important. And then I was remembering that the, the next time kind of that you were really big on my radar was with when you were preparing actually the publication of your book, because I had I knew that you were looking to make connections in, in your research for your book. But then when the book came out, 
And that one is called Women at Church Magnifying LDS Women's Local Impact. And I also, I bought like 12 copies of that book and gave it to every man I knew <laughs> that well, was in you. my local leadership. Yeah, it's fantastic. So you have, I'm, you're a, a dear friend now and I just adore you and your family, but you also have been like really a role model for me and your, and your writing really was influential and, and made a like I said, a really important impact in my life. So I'm so grateful for you and your work and so excited to have you here. And I wonder if you'll just start us out by telling us about yourself personally, where you were born and a bit about what makes you who you are. Yes. Well, thanks for that introduction. I'm I'm glad we're friends now too and not just, uh, not just you know, contacts and, and, uh, <laughs> and email partners. So um, I really appreciate that introduction. Um, I'm, let's see where to start with me personally. I feel like I've lived many, many lives, um, even though I'm, I'm still, you know, relatively young, I think, but I was born and raised in New York city and I was born into a family that, uh, was a part, part member family as we call them. So one, one of my parents was a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, my mother. And my father uh, was not, uh, did not participate in the church and had not been raised LDS. Um, and so I, I, and I was an only child. And so I had both of their complete love and adoration and, and um, for better or for worse, all of their time and energy focused on me. And uh, it was a really remarkable sort of conflagration of, of influences um, because my parents were very different people, had come from very different socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, and I benefited from, from both of them. And I'm really grateful for that because I think as I've gotten older, the education that they gave me and the, both the, both the scholarly education and the religious education have allowed me to see lots of different points of views in the work that I do. Specifically, the scholarly education that they gave me was particularly unique because I went to an all girls school. So I went to one of the, you know, the infamous private girls schools in Manhattan for 13 years um, through from kindergarten through 12th grade. And I actually really loved that, that experience. I graduated with 27 girls, many of whom had been there with me that whole time. And it was, uh, it was a really just very special and unique way to be introduced to sort of feminist theory and thought uh, in an academic setting, but also in practice where our, you know, our leaders were women and we were building each other up as women and, and there was really, you know, nobody telling us we couldn't, we couldn't do things. That was, that was sort of interestingly juxtaposed with um, my experience growing up as a Mormon girl, which I also very much loved, but um, I was definitely getting, you know, more, uh, more traditional family um, teachings and examples in my church life. For me, it worked out really well. Uh, for me, they balanced out, out each other. I saw strengths and weaknesses in each of my communities that I wanted to either take or discard. And I, I really think that the, the sort of what others I think might perceive as being competing influences worked for me as balancing influences. And my mom, I think I'm going to, well, I, I, I know I'll give her complete credit for that because she was a wonderful example of that. Um, as I mentioned, I was an only child, but and my mother had a prominent career as an opera singer. She sang my whole childhood years growing up. She sang at, at the Metropolitan Opera as a soloist. And, um, and yet she was, you know, 
also very active at church. But the result of her career was not to be, you know, diminished or scorned or pariahed at church. It was actually quite the opposite. I grew up with her being a hero of the larger institutional church. And we were both featured in lots of media and in magazines and, you know, videos. And I was on the cover of the youth magazine one time, you know, for the whole world. Um, so for me, the message that I got was that we love Mormon women who are off having big international careers. And I never had any reason to question that. That was kind of a very standard experience for for women in, in New York City who were members of the church at that time. And so, meaning there were other other women like my mom that I looked up to. So I think the the forces were very balancing for me. And I I I had a you know rich academic education in early feminist treatises and feminist literature. I read, you know, A Room of One's Own when I was in ninth grade, Virginia Woolf. I, I have a daughter named after a Virginia Woolf character. Like those, those women and those thoughts are very important to me, but it was also very important to me growing up and seeing uh, my, my mom and my parents, unfortunately dysfunctional and, and ultimately an unsuccessful marriage, uh, also really instilled in me the, the need for the values that I was learning at church. Hmm. I want to point out too, you were on the cover of magazines and you were kind of famous along with your mom, not just because of your mom, but but I know you were like a, a really accomplished pianist. Isn't that I true? Was. Yes. <laughs> Past tense, yes. I was. And did you Today accompany I'm just a stage her? mom? Uh, yes. I accompany my children and, and nag them to practice. That's the oh. extent of it now. Well, that's lovely, but that's really cool. I think that was a an important part of your youth and and music is an important part of what you're doing now right what do you want to talk about a little bit about what you're doing now in yeah so my more formal work experience i guess um you know i spent my foundational career years in silicon valley doing online marketing which gave me a really great basis to jump to lots of different things i felt like you know i got a good sense of online and brand marketing and i could take those skills to lots of different things so i've worked in-house at Silicon Valley retail companies like walmart.com. And I've also worked in-house at advertising agencies. Um, and then I've always been doing women's advocacy work. Well, not always. I mean, I guess for about the past 15 years, I've done women's advocacy work from a volunteer point of view. And so four years ago, I decided that I wanted to make that my full-time job. And so I I launched a program called Better Days 2020, which was a nonprofit that popularized the fact that Utah, where I currently live, was the first place an American woman voted under um, an equal suffrage law. And that's a kind of little known fact, uh, fun fact about, about Utah and about our nation. And so I took the women's, women's advocacy experience that I'd had running lots of volunteer efforts in the past and sort of poured them into a, a large marketing and community engagement and education project in the form of this nonprofit Better Days 2020. So that wrapped up last year with the centennial of the 19th Amendment. And as a result of that, I published another book called Pioneering the Vote, The Untold Story of Suffragists in Utah and the West. And um, and I've just had a really fun time promoting that book and sort of seeing the effects of our work at Better Days 2020. But yes, I, I reinvented myself again just this year and decided that I wanted to focus my professional efforts in music finally <laughs> for the first time fi- officially um, as, as 
as a as a job. And I acquired a small software company that manages software that provides digital um, studio management tools for independent music teachers. So think billing and scheduling and roster management and lesson notes. We provide the software that enables at-home music teachers to run their small businesses. Fabulous. You have had a lot of lives. You I have. have. You it have. keeps things interesting. I love it. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, so the next question that I like to ask is just what interested you in the project Breaking Down Patriarchy? Yeah, I, well, as I mentioned, I attended an all-girls school growing up. And, and so many of the, the works that you've been featuring have, were familiar to me. Uh, some of them, of course, you know, ones more recently are not. I just finished your last episode with the UN Declaration on the Violence of Women. I was not familiar with that. And that was certainly, you know, vital to to understand. So um, I just, I've, I love, I've loved your approach of looking at these foundational texts um, and, and drawing them out. Uh, my particular area of expertise in women's advocacy has been in practical implementation of ideas that change hearts and minds of the general public. I'm always looking towards uh, cooperative solutions in corporate and social structures. So I've, I've spent less time on you know, the academic study of the the rise of feminism or theory, feminist theory. And while I've done extensive reading, my specialty is, is very much in the application. And so that's why I was drawn to this book in particular. But I have loved, you know, following along with um, all of your episodes and the tremendous work that you've done, helping us see that through line of really where things come from. I think, you know, my work with Better Days 2020 and the historical work that I did there looking at the origins of the suffrage movement and and specifically the movement here in Utah you know I just drew so much comfort from the idea of being able to understand why things are the way they are and I think you you've said that too that that's a big motivator for you mm-hmm. um I also will just mention that one of the one of the hats I've worn in the past one of the things I tried before better days 2020 really took off here in Utah about 4 years ago I actually started a company called the Seneca Council Hmm. And I developed as part of that an evaluation that measured the level of gender optimization in corporate workplaces. Gender optimization was my term, and it was heavily influenced actually by this book that we're reading today and um, Slaughter's whole idea of, of men and women working cooperatively to balance the needs of, in their lives more fairly gen- you know, across the board. And um, so I, it was kind of like an audit of a company's policies, culture, and structures. And we did a couple of, of companies, and um, it was really, really interesting. But ultimately, Better Days 2020 kind of took off, got funded, you know, had more success. And so I abandoned the Seneca Council. But I do, I did a lot of research for that company, and I developed a very, what I thought was a pretty cool auditing tool. And so I, I did study you know, slaughter in these practical applications that we're going to talk about today pretty comprehensively. Wow. Well, someone needs to take that back up. The Seneca Council, that's fantastic. Wow. And you, I mean, this really does make you just the perfect reading partner for this book. And I'll say one thing, especially when I talk about um, all these books I'm reading with my husband and he listens to all the episodes too. And he loves it too. He loves the history, but he's so pragmatic and he he often asks me, okay, so what do I do? Like, where's my, Mm -hmm. where are my action items? What's my to-do list? And I do think I, I do get a lot of 
um, comfort and also, you know, intellectual exhilaration, understanding the historical timeline. But at the end of the day, like, what are we going to do with these precious moments that we have on earth to make the world a better place? We really do need action items. And so I, I really do appreciate your approach and Anne-Marie Slaughter's approach in this book, because she does give very, very concrete tools to be able to create the changes that we want to see. So so yeah, I'm excited to dig into this. And I'll just start, um, before we start talking about the book itself, I'll just talk just briefly about the author um, so we have an idea of and what prompted her to, to write the book. So Anne-Marie Slaughter was born in Virginia in 1958 to a Belgian mother and an American father. She graduated magna cum laude from Princeton University in 1980 and then received her Master's of Philosophy in International Affairs from Oxford University. University in 1982. She then studied at Harvard Law School and graduated cum laude with a JD in 1985. And she continued at Harvard after graduation as a researcher. And then in 1992, she received her PhD in international relations from Oxford. Anne-Marie Slaughter served on the faculty of the University of Chicago Law School from 1989 to 1994, and then on the faculty of Harvard Law School from 94 to 2002. She then moved to Princeton University to serve as the dean of the Woodrow Wilson School, and she was the first woman to hold that position. And she held that post from 2002 to 2009 when she accepted an appointment at the U.S. State Department working under Senator Hillary Clinton. And in 2011, she returned to Princeton as a professor. And the factors, the, the personal and professional factors that informed that decision for her to leave the State Department and go back to Princeton are what led her to publish that article that I mentioned at the very beginning, that article in the Atlantic magazine in 2012 that was entitled, Why Women Still Can't Have It All. And Nyland, do you want to just kind of expand on that part of the story really quick? Because it's kind of a good segue before we get into the actual chapters. Yeah, yeah sure. So as you mentioned, she left the State Department uh, despite having the opportunity to stay. She had been working under Senator or Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and she was widely criticized for this dis this decision. She says in the book, this crisis had forced me to confront what was most important to me rather than what I was conditioned to want, or perhaps what I had conditioned myself to want. So she noticed the tension right away in the, in the responses of her friends and colleagues, you know, when she made this decision to go home to her two teenage sons who had, they, I think they'd been having some problems, you know, just, just uh, discipline issues. And, um, and, and there was an immediate backlash against her for making this decision. And so she she really had to evaluate for herself, you know, why she was making that decision. Was it based on, you know, societal pressures? Was it in contrast to societal pressures? Um, was it really what she wanted or was she feeling, you know, why was she feeling guilty about this decision? Why was she feeling pressure from from all sides. And so she, as you've mentioned, she does explore this in the in the Atlantic article, why women still can't have it all. And as you mentioned in your introduction, it's one of the most read articles in the history of the magazine. And her thesis is that women still don't have the freedom to make the choices that work best for them because of systemic and cultural barriers around women in the workplace. And she, you know, what I what I like about this book in the in the context of uh, breaking down patriarchy is like 
as I said a little bit earlier, she, earlier she's, you know, she's familiar with the academic argument. She makes it very clear that she was, you know, raised as a good feminist and and um, felt those those pressures and the responsibility that she had as such a you know decorated academic. But she really tackles the you know the wins and the shortcomings of where feminist theory has landed us in a day to day lived reality. And that's what I I love so much about her approach in this book. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Okay, well, then let's dig in. That's um, the perfect launching point. And and I guess the first thing I'll say, as I introduce chapter one, I chose chapter one to highlight. And I just have to say a couple sentences about this, because, you know, listeners will know by now about my personal life, that I wasn't raised in a tradition of feminism. And, and the, the book kind of begins with a premise that um, is kind of foreign to me and my lived experience. She says that based on the way she was raised as a child of the 1970s, you know, second wave of feminism, she says, quote, I'm a feminist. And one of the central tenets of my life has been to believe and live the proposition that women can have full-fledged careers just like men without giving up the joys of family life. So obviously, yeah, I was, I was raised really with kind of a binary of either a woman works or a woman is a stay-home parent and and takes care of her children and nurtures her children. And I was very, very much raised in that traditional model of that, you know, the workplace was the, the men's realm and the home was the women's realm. And so as Slaughter was kind of making her arguments against that beginning premise, I had to kind of take an extra step like, oh, yeah, she was <laughs> she was raised very differently. And and so she's taking step from A to B. And I had to do kind of this work on the back end to even get to A. But Nylan, you talked a little bit about how, you know, you and I grew up in the same faith, but with different families of origin. And I've even mentioned in other episodes that um, even my sister and I, you know, in the same household and obviously the same religion, we internalized different messaging Mm -hmm. Um, because when, once we got to college, her studies were in a field of professional training because she was in nursing school. And I, so she was much more comfortable working outside the home, even though we're sisters. Right. Mm. And so we, it's, it's not to say that, that, um, you know, all Mormon women are, are taught this way. And, and you even spoke to that in your bio. So did you want to talk a little bit more about what paradigm you grew up with? Cause I think it is different from mine. Yeah, I I very much identify with with this central tenant that she describes that that women can have full fledged careers just like men without giving up the joys of family life. I mean, I think I saw that in my my mom's own life, and you know she she was on a a speech speaking circuit in the 1980s around how women can have it all. I mean, this this phrase actually was 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 a key mantra of my of my young life because my mom yeah. was apparently you know based on our 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 community a a walking example of this this the success of this and i think it's really interesting to look back on as i said these competing forces in my life of this very woman focused education and then very family focused religious life that I didn't wonder or worry more about how they were all going to work together. And I think that's part of mm. her point here too, is that, you know, we are, those of us that were brought up with this proposition, it was never really unpacked for us, right? This, 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 um, it was an assumption. It was a central tenant, but 
we never really had to break down and say, okay, well, how is this exactly going to work? And I never I never broke it down for myself either. And I look back and, and wonder how naive I was to never actually sit down and say, hmm, how, how is this going to all work out? And I've, I've really had to craft a life for myself where, you know, like Slaughter, I've, I've made some decisions that sort of seesaw back and forth between the priorities. And again, I'll credit my mom. I think the reason I wasn't concerned about it as I was growing up was because my mom was doing it. But I, mm. I noticed as I, now that I'm older, that she had a lot of things going on in her life that made that possible for her. She only had one child, first of all. And and I, I'm sure I'll talk more about this later, but her, you know, her inability to have more children really was a key factor in opening the door for her to have the career that she did. Also, my dad was a Wall Street lawyer. Like, you know, she didn't make a ton of money, but we still lived well because of him. Um, and so I, I think I've unpacked that a lot more as I've grown up. And I think that that's exactly the same process that Slaughter goes through in this book of really really trying to figure out what it means to live by that central tenant, but in a day-to-day reality. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I just had to come to my mind, a friend of mine who was just quite a bit ahead of me in this process of thinking through it. I remember when my kids were little, all of our kids were little, and I I overheard her talking to her oldest daughter. And she, her daughter was saying, when I grow up, I want to be a marine biologist. And her mom said, that's fantastic are you interested in having a family too? And she said, oh yeah, I'll be a mom. And and my friend said, okay, well, what, what are you going to do with your kids while you're at work? And the, her little daughter said, my kids will ride the dolphins while I work. <laughs> like, I love that. <laughs> I loved it too. And I, I mean, it's such a cute, <laughs> it's such a cute image that, I mean, the simplicity of that answer just kind of highlights how that's just not going to work. And like, it's a lot more complicated than that. But I have thought back to that and thought that is so wonderful that she was asking her kids that question from a young age. So they would have to think, um, this is wonderful. And you're going to have to be creative and figure out and you can make it work, but we should start, you know, having those conversations. So one way of viewing the book is as a response to another really influential book that was coming out right around the same time. It was Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In. And that was published in in 2013 and encouraged women to pursue leadership in their field of work, um, even if they have children at home, and to kind of go full throttle when you're in the prime of your life. And so Slaughter addresses this. She, t- she talks about this conversation that, you know, the nation was having at the time, and there's the Sandberg approach, and then there's the Slaughter approach. And she says this, Cheryl Sandberg and I agree on many things. We both encourage women to speak up and take their place at the table. We both want to see many structural changes in the workplace. To some extent, the difference between us is largely a matter of which side of the equation to emphasize. A difference that, on my side at least, is a function of relative age. I would have written a very similar book to Lean In at 43, Sandberg's age when she published her book. My kids were very young, and I had never met a work-life challenge that I could not surmount by working harder or hiring people to help out. By 53, when I wrote my article, I found myself in a different place, one that gave me insight into the circumstances and choices facing the many women who have found that for whatever reason, leaning in simply isn't an option. 
On another level, however, the differences between Sandberg and me are more fundamental. We have similar backgrounds in many ways, but our careers have led us on very different paths. Sandberg focuses on how young women can climb into the C-suite in a traditional male world of corporate hierarchies. I see that system itself as antiquated and broken. When law firms and corporations hemorrhage talented women who reject lockstep career paths and question promotion systems that elevate quantity of hours worked over the quality of the work itself, the problem is not with the women. Lean In tells you how to survive and win in what is still fundamentally a man's world while making what changes you can when you reach the top. Okay, so as I said, this is in some ways, it's kind of a a primary thesis in the book. And that's reflected in her original Atlantic article where she says she says that she still strongly believes that women can have it all and that men can, too. They can have a, a rich work life and a rich family life. And she says she even believes that we can have it all at the same time, but not right now, not today, not with the way America's economy and society are currently structured. And so she says, yeah, the the problem is not the women. It's that the women aren't sufficiently supported in order to make an egalitarian society run efficiently and well. Yeah. I I read both of those books when they came out. And I think, you know, obviously, because we're here talking about... um, Slaughter's book, I'm on Team Slaughter. I just think <laughs> that 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 approach it just fits well with what we need um, as a society today. But I would add that that Anne Marie Slaughter is responding not just to Sandberg with this book, but also to so many of the feminist pioneers who have come before from everyone from Simone de Beauvoir, Rianne Eisler, mm-hmm. who have talked about, and even earlier Georges Sand, who all wrestled with this idea that in order to achieve equality with men, women had to act like men or at least play the male game of achievement. You know, George Sun famously dressed as a man and and mm-hmm. um, and kind of gained notoriety in 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 acting like a man in many regards. So, you know, I, I think you in the podcast actually laid out some of these these approaches from these other feminist pioneers and. I really think Slaughter is trying to move us firmly into a more evolved attitude that equality between men and women doesn't have to mean sameness. And, you know, I think she's going to spend the book ex- explaining to us what that means. I think sometimes, you know, claiming that men and women don't have to be the same can feel uncomfortable and ambiguous to people because we don't know what exactly that looks like and we don't know quite how to get there. We, we might, we're much more comfortable with this idea of, of men and women being the same, right? And women mm-hmm. kind of climbing the structure that's already in place for us. But, you know, it, to do what Slaughter's suggesting, we have to kind of backtrack a little bit and break things down before we can build them up again. And that's, that's a scarier place to be. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And that sameness has you know, meant in the last couple of decades, women making themselves into the image of men. Like you said, with George Sand wearing men's clothes and and taking on a male name and with all of these people saying, yeah, we have to be the same as men in order to get what men have, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really, really great point. Um, okay, that's all I have for chapter one, Nylon. Do you want to take it away with um, the chapters that you selected? I will, yes. Yeah. So I'm actually taking the next several chapters because in these chapters, 
Slaughter outlines some half-truths. And this is one of the things that I love about this book is that she she faces head-on some of these fallacies that we have adopted and ingrained. And she challenges them and rewords them and, and reconstructs them. And her her basic thesis with these half-truths is that that you know there there are definitely there's some truth in them but um but 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 they're only half truths there's a lot that's missing so i'll just read some of the half truths that she proposes here in chapter 2 and i i think maybe it'll become clearer what i mean so a half truth she says is not wholly false it's just that half truth it often obscures a bigger deeper truth something that we do not want or do not choose to face so there's three main half-truths that she claims women have absorbed and, and, and live by in, in a sort of fallacy. The first is, you can have it all if you are just committed enough to your career. Secondly, you can have it all if you marry the right person. And third, you can have it all if you sequence it right. And she spends a lot of time unpacking these half-truths, but her basic her basic summary is that that life is an adventure and things don't go the way you want them to go, right? This And the system isn't set up to absorb the vagaries of women's lived experience. None of these things actually happen. Nobody is actually committed enough to their career to just, you know, sort of force it through to, to, to be the exact thing that someone wants it to be. Nobody marries the right person and no one ever sequences <laughs> it right because life happens, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I love that about her, her approach here and her theory in the whole book. And so she says that a resilient system, the one kind of system that she's advocating for, is one that can handle the unexpected and bounce back, that anticipates the possibility of many different paths to the same destination. So um, she amends the half-truths at the end of the chapter, and she turns them into whole-truths. And she says, yes, you can have it all if you're committed enough to your career, dot, 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 and you are lucky enough never to hit a point where, you're, where your carefully constructed balance between work and family topples over. Of course, you know, who doesn't hit that point, right? Who doesn't hit that point where there's a particularly – um, needy or demanding child or a child who you just want to spend more time with or needs more nurturing, who doesn't hit the point where they have, you know, um, a parent that needs caring for or, you know, a, a spouse who loses their job or a divorce that happens or a death in the family, right? That it's that if you're lucky enough, um, then yes, you can have it all, but but that that luck is very rare. Secondly, she says you can have it all if you marry the right person, dot, dot, dot who is willing to defer his or her career to yours, you stay married, your own preferences regarding how much time you are willing to spend at work remain unchanged after you have children or find yourself caring for aging parents. So again, she's building in all the vagaries of life and all of the sort of luck that goes into a lot of things and, you know, so in, and improvise here that that yes, if you you have to marry a person who is interested in a partnership and interested in a sort of going back and, and forth and she she again acknowledges how how difficult that is. The third half truth is you can have it all as long as you sequence it right. Yes, dot, dot, dot. As long as you succeed in having children when you plan to, you have an employer who both permits you to work part-time or in a flexible work schedule and still sees you as leadership material. 
or you take time out and then find a good job on a leadership track once you decide to get back in, regardless of your age. So there are a lot of buts in there. Um, yes, you can have it all if you have these things. And, you know, I, I just really appreciate that because um, that's certainly, I've found that to be true in my working life. You know, I've been able to run nonprofits and buy small software companies, partly because I have a husband who has a stable career. And I acknowledge that up front all the time. I'm very grateful to him. He has much less flexibility than I do. And I think we'll talk about this later on because it's a big theme of Slaughter's work is, is, you know, what's, what does it mean for men to have it all? I think I have, I think I'm much closer to having it all than my, than my husband does at this time, time in our lives. And so I think, you know, being, that's one of the reasons I've reinvented myself professionally so many times is because I've found that, you know, the different eras of my children's lives or my husband's different work position or the city that we're, we're, we're living in has offered you know, different opportunities for me, but they haven't been consistent opportunities. They haven't been a C-suite ladder. We've moved around too much. You know, I've wanted to be with my kids too much. My husband's had to work too much. So, so being able to sort of, you know, bend in the wind of all of that is, is her point. I'll just go quickly through the half truths of the workplace. She does the same exercise with workplace half truths. She says the first half truth is that the issue of work-life balance is a woman's problem. If we define it that way, then it is up to women to find or at least implement the solution. The second is that employers can make room for caregiving by offering flex time and part-time arrangements. While these policies certainly represent progress over rigid all-in or get-out workplaces, they're not nearly enough for many workers with caregiving responsibilities. The third half-truth is our assumption that wanting work-life balance, or even just wanting a life outside of work, signals a lack of commitment to that work. That assumption reflects a mindset that promotes men with full-time wives and no lives. Mm. Do you have anything you want to add to that, Amy, before I move on to chapter four? No, I'm just, I don't know if you're watching me, but I'm nodding very oh. vigorously. <laughs> you're good to to just keep going. Okay. So she she concludes this section on half-truths with what I think is really the great, the great coupling, the great pairing of the book. And it's it's in the title of chapter four, and the title is Competition and Care. And I know that, you know, as I said, you, you've explored in some of your previous podcasts, these kind of um, spectrums that, you know, former theorists have proposed partnership versus dominance, et cetera. You know, the, these, these ideas that there is a, a, a nurturing and a, and, um, and a breadwinning side to life. Right. And she calls this competition and care. And, and she labels these as the great motive, the two great motivators of men and women alike. She defines competition as the impulse to pursue our self-interest in a world in which others are pursuing theirs. And care is the impulse to put others first. So one is, you know, put ourselves first, and then the other is put others first. And these have been historically gendered, she notes, with caregiving devalued and discriminated against. And she cites this statistic that motherhood is now the single best indicator that an unmarried middle-class woman will end up bankrupt. So she... She, I, I just love this chapter and what she has to say about these t- defining and elucidating these these two motivators. 
she she doesn't you know she sees us a society uh, that it really wants to pit one against the other and one in which we are constantly weighing one against the other and valuing one against the other this gets to you know such these such important ideas of Rian Eisler and the real wealth of nations this idea that you know monetary value is the way that we assign uh, worth to activities, right, and to projects. Um, and she says, I'm not proposing to devalue competition. I'm proposing to revalue care, to elevate it to its proper place as an essential human instinct, drive, and activity. This is another thing that I love about Slaughter's approach. She's not trying to take away something from anybody. She's not trying to take away power. She's not trying to take away worth She's not trying to take away value. She's trying to build up the other side of the equation. And, you know, if we do look at that in traditional gendered terms, that's really important because, you know, in the work that I've done, I know it can feel really threatening to men if they feel like power is a zero-sum game, right? And if a woman comes in and is trying to take something, take some power or claim some power, then they, by definition, are going to lose their power. And by, you know, by, by structuring the equation this way, instead, where we're sort of building up this side of, of care rather than tearing down competition, I think Slaughter very carefully is trying to manage that and not make this an us versus them, but, you know, trying to raise all boats at the same time. So I really love that about her approach. And she kind of concludes this, this sort of you know, rebalancing of the scales by saying, in the long quest for gender equality, women first had to gain power and independence by emulating men. She she's acknowledging here that there was a place for all of that, right? There was a there was a there was a place for saying we have to lean into the to the the male structure. But she goes on, as we attain that power and independence, we must not automatically accept the traditional man's view, which is really the view of only a minority of men, about what matters in the world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that that reminds me of a, a quote that I, I don't think is going to come up later, but that really stuck out to me from the book. And I, I'm sure all of us have heard this, you know, either in a TED talk or some some other medium where, where people talk about what what do people, you know, say when they're on their deathbeds? What do they wish they had done? And invariably, people, men and women talk about relationships and enjoying their lives. And they usually say they they wish that they hadn't, you know, focused so much on competitive work and that they wish that they had spent more time in, in relationships. And so I, I really appreciate her pointing that out and that that's true for everybody. That's a human thing. Absolutely. So she continues with this idea in chapter five, and I love the title of chapter five because it's the, the title is, Is Managing Money Really Harder Than Managing Kids? Again, she's <laughs> kind of you know challenging us to question um, our valuation of these different activities. Um, and in, she says... She says, it may seem obvious, but let's be clear about the meanings of breadwinning and caregiving. In any society that has a system of exchange beyond barter, adults have to earn income to pay the rent or the mortgage, buy food, clothing, and furniture, pay for transportation, heat, electricity, health insurance, and a phone. That's breadwinning. One or both members of a couple must also do the work that turns that income into goods and services necessary for survival and flourishing. 
shopping, cooking, cleaning, washing, driving, repairing, organizing, and outsourcing. And that is just the physical dimension of care, the taking care of another human being in the same way that a caretaker looks after a house or property. Caregiving, the term we typically use when we mean taking care of other people, includes the additional emotional component of love and nurture, the transformation of an income stream into the lifeblood of human connection. I just love how she extends the, I mean, it's, it's, she really takes the equation of caregiving on one side and competition on the other side, and she actually turns them into a linear equation. She actually says competition plus caregiving equals life, right? Equals the Mm -hmm. human condition. You can't Mm -hmm. just live off of competition alone. Nobody does. Even the most hardened, you know, focused Wall Street trader still has to like feed himself, right? (laughs) Still has to like call his mom once a week or whatever, right? Still Mm -hmm. has Instagram, still likes to connect with other people. And so she's saying, you know, there's a continuum between competition and caring. They're not on either side um, battling each other out. It's a continuum. And um, they're both necessary. You have to take the income that's produced from competition and you have to spend it because that's where life really is. It's in the spending of that mm-hmm. um, of, of the, the, that produce, right? And that's what makes life worth living. So I, I just, yeah, I really like her, her work. You're kind of, you know, wrestling with the math there and the way we usually set these things up as, as opposites of each other. Mm-hmm. And of course, I, I I agree completely. And I, I also appreciate her kind of reformatting that spectrum and pointing out we've we've always gendered that and it doesn't need to be gendered. Um, there are certain stereotypes that maybe they do hold true. But when we when we really allow people to just be who they are, like you just pointed out, you know, that a stereotypical masculine way of living, and maybe there are more men, well, there certainly are right now, right, who are working those Wall Street jobs, but they have that side of them that needs to connect to people too, and to take some of that money that they're earning and buy it, or buy ingredients to make a birthday cake for somebody, <laughs> because and it turns it into nurturing, right? And that yes. there are there are women, well, all of those traits in different ratios and different percentages exist in all of us, men and women. And so we don't need to, we don't need to, to gender that, that spectrum the way we have. So the next chapter that we wanted to highlight, and both of us picked this one as, as really essential is chapter six. And it, this chapter kind of fleshes out one of the main concepts of the book. The book title is, of course, Unfinished Business. And I was thinking about that title and and just how it refers to the fact that the women's movement, especially, you know, the 1972nd wave of feminism really started those, you know, important shifts in society or continued them rather from prior feminist movements. But, you know, that that paradigm that women should make themselves more like men and that we can crush it in a man's world and and I think that's what she's referring to when she calls the book Unfinished Business. Like we, there's still a ways to go and there's still work left to be done. And one of the most important pieces in the next phase is a men's movement. And so the, the title of chapter six is the next phase of the women's movement is a men's movement. And I even just love the title of the chapter. <laughs> I think it's so great. So she starts out this chapter with a, an article that was in the New York Times by Matt Volano, and it's called I hate being called a good dad. 
and he's a full-time parent. And I have to admit, I when I read, you know, the passages in the book from his article, my heart melted like as he's describing <laughs> him like at Target and he's a like, man I'm with a baby. Yes. yes, it's so cute. Um, so sweet. And he is a good dad. And you know, he describes taking his two little girls to the park and taking them and he says he has this, you know, kind of like routine where they wave to the security cameras in Target. And he said one time when he was there, a woman just looked at him with these, you know, kind of stars in her eyes and said, oh, you're such a good dad. And he says he he hears that all the time. And he says that this incident, and of course, I mean, he recognizes it comes from a good place, but he calls it a heinous double standard where he is praised for behavior that in a mother would be regarded as absolutely routine. And he points out, he says, Andrew Romano calls it the, quote, soft bigotry of low expectations. She's highlighting that men who are staying home with their children encounter this all the time of women saying to them like, oh, you're such a cute dad. And it's it's quite demeaning. And it, you know, saying things that they would never say to women that we can take completely for granted that women are going to be, you know, nurturing and wonderful parents. And so, yeah. Um, so I love the title of this chapter too, Amy. And one of the key theses of this chapter is when Slaughter says, she says the most most of the pervasive gender equalities in our society for both men and women cannot be fixed unless men have the same range of choices with respect to mixing caregiving and breadwinning that women do. So as you you know, as we've been talking about, there needs to be a movement that enables men to also cross the divide between caregiving and competition, right? To mm-hmm. to be in that continuum that we were talking about, that equation in which competition and caregiving are are mixed in different proportions to create a whole life. And that is definitely what she spends the most of the chapter on. And um, she says, for instance, it dawned on me that the majority of American mothers in the 21st century are raising our daughters with more life paths open to them than are open to our sons. That's a staggering statement, but mm-hmm. you know, it's totally true. Um, you know, I'm raising three daughters, you're raising three daughters and a son, and um, they know they can do anything, right? They know that even if their kids aren't going to be riding on the backs of dolphins, they're going to figure it out <laughs> somehow, right? Like mm-hmm. there are, they are going to end up marrying somebody who is is willing to be a partner with them. They are going to be able to have, you know, flexible work situations. They are going to have different eras of what they do, and and um, they know that, and they know that there's going to be a way for them to figure it out. And and I don't know. I mean, you're you. you we only have one son between us, but you. You know, it doesn't seem to me that we're yet um, sort of inculcating that same message into our boys as much. And I think that that's really such a such a huge um, value that she brings in this book is really focusing on that. I see that in my husband's life, as I said, you know, I wish that he felt more balanced. I have I have, you know, I have a great flexible arrangement that I've worked hard to create, and he isn't quite there yet. So, Definitely, he's the, he's definitely the focus of this era of our lives, helping him, you know, balance out that equation a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to make the point though that before you read the chapter, if you just read the the title of the chapter, you know, the next stage of the women's movement is a men's movement. I think you can read it actually very differently, which is that 
men have a responsibility now to finish clearing the paths that women currently do not yet have the power and privilege to do. Hmm. And this is something that I think about a lot in the women's advocacy work that I've done because I've done most of it within, you know, more conservative religious traditions where men culturally and structurally do have the power to clear paths. And it is up to them many times to, to do that, um, especially in the suffrage movement, which I studied for so long. You know, obviously it was all men who could hmm. – pass these laws in local state legislatures and then in Congress with the amendment, like it was entirely in men's hands mm -hmm. to open the doors to women, um, to have the rights that they simply had to ask for, right? And, and couldn't enact on their own. And so I think that we're not past that part of the movement yet. Um, mm -hmm. Women do not yet have the power and privilege everywhere and in the levels of hierarchy that they need in order to clear the paths for other women entirely. You know, and I know that those, you know, who have lived out the effects of, of second wave feminism and come of age, you know, under the, under the mentorship of second wave feminists have sometimes found that it backfires, right? Um, there, I know when my mom was, um, was rising in her career, she often felt the sort of bitterness of women who had come before her that she didn't, you know, appreciate or understand or value enough what they had suffered so that she could do what she um, did. And so sometimes women can be our own worst enemies when it comes to, you know, climbing a corporate ladder where there is only one position to be gained, right? There's only one sea level spot. There's there's limited um, opportunities, and sometimes it is necessary for men to come in uh, where they do still have the power and privilege to do so to clear those. And I think you know we're seeing that um, we're seeing that a little bit in in corporate HR directors, for instance. Um, I mentioned that I that I ran briefly ran this company called the Seneca Council. Well. The, the people who – the few clients we did have were all male HR directors who worked for big companies who wanted to do better by their female employees. And I've seen over and over again in my advocacy work men stepping up where sometimes women have held back. And I just think that that's a fascinating dynamic. Um, you know, of course – the goal is to get to the place where women are in positions of power and privilege so to and, and confident enough in those positions where they can clear paths and open doors for other women. But we're still not quite there yet. And, you know, I I she doesn't she doesn't go into that in detail in the book here, but I, I do think that that's another way to read read this title of this chapter. That's such a great point, Nylan. And I would say to sum up chapter six, because she gives a lot of examples of where, you know, gender parity or equity and, and justice and opportunity, we're not there yet. And she, she talks about, you know, how girls have an easier time in elementary school than boys do. But then she says, you know, who, who's really suffering is boys of color in our country. And, and so 
she talks about, I, I'm just look at the numbers. She says only 12% of black fourth grade boys in large city schools are proficient in reading compared with 38% of white boys in the nation. Yeah. And only 12% of black eighth grade boys in large city schools are proficient in math compared with 44% of white boys in the nation. And I just think like, as you just talked about men, please, you still need to be looking out for women. And, and if we consider ourselves as a human family saying like, there are things that, that really people in positions of power and privilege, you know, other people don't have there, we don't have access to the levers of power to pull on the levers. So please, men, you need to not forget women. There's still work that needs to be done. Please white people. Yeah. (laughs) You need to, to look around you. Many, many of our fellow human beings are, our our siblings are not there yet. We there's so much work to be done. And to and to circle back to the to the first thing that she talked about at the beginning of the chapter that we need to um clear away for and that you talked about, you know, with your own husband and I have similar concerns for mine about men's work life balance and their ability to to have it all and to live the lives that they want. And and what men say over and over in this book is we want more time with our kids. We want more time with our families. We don't love, you know, slaving away in our cubicles. And this is not what we want. And that I mean, when we, you know, as I was thinking, why this book in in a podcast on breaking down patriarchy and and a lot of these examples were ways that patriarchy has harmed men too in in confining Absolutely. men to that competition side of the spectrum and saying no you have to be in this box where you miss out on all of those joys of life it's not good for boys and men either so we've all got to look out for each other and and you know women can help to not not um so narrowly confine men too in these masculine roles but to rather kind of like redefine what it means to be a real man and that that can mean elementary school teacher and that can mean full-time parent and that can mean, um, you know, a lot of different things so that little boys can grow up with all of those, that big, wide range of options that are available, that should be available to all humans. So. Yeah. Um, okay, that's that's what we've got for Chapter 6. Nyland, do you want to... Yeah, I think we wanted to jump into the the last section of the book, which is the practical applications of all of these observations. How how we change our our speech um, and our plans for our careers and the way we interact with others based on what she's laid out so far. So, this is the really great practical nuts and bolts. Of, of her recommendations here in this last part of the book. Chapter eight is, is to called Change the Way You Talk. She gives a list of suggestions of you know, bullet-pointed ideas for how to speak to somebody else in a way that tries to break down some of these barriers between care and competition. And, and I'll, just, I'll just read a couple of these. She talks about you know, don't use the term stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad, a phrase that implies that the office is the norm and thus someone at home needs a qualifier. She says, mm-hmm. try using the descriptors lead parent, anchor parent instead. And we actually do that in my home. We are we talk about the lead parent. And my husband is less often the lead parent, but it definitely happens. And 
he, for instance, you know, my we, some of our some of our children, their interests appeal to him more than they do to me, and so he'll go to those events, and I'll go to the other events, and um, and and we kind of, you know, we we do we do identify each other as, as lead parent. So he, uh, another suggestion is when one of your work colleagues or someone you supervise must leave early, come in late, or work from home because of caregiving responsibilities, try to avoid asking things like, how do you plan to get your work done, even if the question is not accusatory? Questions like these reinforce the assumption that if you are committed to your family, you are less committed to your work. I wanted to highlight that one because I think COVID has really <laughs> forced mm. all of us to just, I mean, that that question is obsolete, I hope, in a lot of spheres, right? How do you plan to get your work done? I think that this past year and a half really kind of made that a moot point. But but that's a really good thing because as she says, you know, we're we're no longer reinforcing the assumption that if you're committed to your family, you're less committed to your work or that there's only one place you can do your work, right? I think that's been a defining factor of my career. I haven't had an office for I think six years now. And so, you know, even pre-COVID, the teams I've worked with and and teams I've even led have been, you know, virtual or or officeless, and um, and I've I've loved that. It's worked really really well for me. You know, she talks about asking people basic things like asking people what they're reading rather than how's work or what do you do. And then she's got actionable items for your career as well. And I like these two. They're not sorry, not actionable items. She has scenarios. That, that people should think about when planning their careers, because going back to her, her, you know, one of her theses that I talked about at the very beginning, she is working off the assumption that life is an adventure and life is, is not going to go the way that you think it should go. Um, and so she challenges people to really be realistic about what it takes to be a working parent, uh, that it can be very complicated and she says, for instance, your child has a fever of 101 for the third day in a row. The doctor says it will run its course, but daycare won't take him until his fever has been below 100 for 24 hours. Um, your partner has a major work presentation. You can't stay home either. What do you do? Again, I think some of these have been addressed by by COVID um, and by the you know the the prevalence of of online and remote work now. Here's another one. To cover the school summer vacation between kindergarten and first grade, which is the bane of working parents' existence, by the way. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Summer is just drives me crazy. You have enrolled your daughter in a highly regarded summer day camp. However, she's unable to handle such a big transition and is acting out. The camp directors told you she's too disruptive and cannot stay. At this point, all the other quality camps are full and you are not sure she could handle them anyway, what will you do? I like this one because, you know, you can't ever outsource a child's happiness to Zoom, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You can't just say you're going to work at home because the summer camp didn't work out. I mean, maybe, maybe you can, but it just seems like a long, you know, that that's, (laughs) that's not, that's not realistic. And that's the reality. I mean, and that's why it's been important for me to have a more flexible opportunity um, while raising our three children since my husband hasn't had that opportunity. And so for me, that's what it means to be means to be lead parent at this time of life. i'm I'm the one that um, needs to to pick up those situations. That's not to say that he never does, but you know, it's um somebody needs to be there to do that. and you can, you can toss it back and forth 50-50 or there, there's going to be somebody who does it more often. 
Um, and I, I'll just conclude with the the four points that she, the four principles she gives, she suggests for planning a career that really is able to work around these kinds of um, potholes that she describes. And I love the way she, that she concludes the book with these four principles. Um, I just think they're really actionable and they really bring together everything she's been talking about. So if you, if, unless you want to add anything, Amy, I'm, I'll just launch into these last four principles. No, please do. Cause I think those are so important too. Yeah. Okay. Take it away. She says the first principle to, to work, to look at when you're planning a career is that life, especially working life, is considerably longer than previous generations. There's time to do lots of things. Um, and she makes the point that, you know, rather than being a company man and staying on the professional ladder at the same company for decades, nobody does that anymore, right? That's kind of mm-hmm. weird these days. <laughs> um, and, but she says, depending on your career goals, you'll want to put the intense effort to climb at least one, some of those corporate ladders. Uh, some of those ladders to do everything you can to make it to a certain level or even to the top. But between these periods of push, you'll also be able to plan intervals of less intensive and more flexible work, work that is more compatible with caregiving. I feel such a, like, I feel so, I, I just love all four of these principles because I feel like I've implemented all of them in my professional life. As I mentioned, I started my career in Silicon Valley and those first seven years of my career, they gave me skills that set me to do so many different things for the rest of my mm-hmm. life. Um, and so I feel like I feel like I climbed that ladder and I made it to a certain level and that was a period of pushing for me. But then I've been able to benefit or sort of live off of the benefits of that ever since then. So um, those those long time periods of of push versus sort of stepping back and pushing again that's i really benefited from that the second thing she suggests is a portfolio career so part-time jobs all of which together add up to a full-time job and each of which allows you to express a different part of your identity so also defined as a series of full-time jobs that challenge you in a different way so she's saying you can either sort of put together um, a portfolio or like a collage of jobs at any one time that sort of challenge you in different ways and and as a whole satisfy you, or you can do it over the series of, of time where you have different jobs that challenge you in a different way. Again, I feel like I've done that latter path. I've had a series of full-time jobs that have challenged me in different ways, and it's been really, really fulfilling. Um, her third principle is defer, don't drop out entirely. I know I've heard you express, Amy, that you know you dropped out entirely when you had when you had your first baby, and mm-hmm. um, I don't know would you know would you would you do the same today? Maybe maybe not. She she suggests stay in the game, plan for leaning back as well as leaning in, make deliberate rather than unintended choices. So she's not saying go right back to work as soon as your maternity leave is over and keep Mm -hmm. pushing, right? She's saying be deliberate about it rather than find yourself years down the road being like, why did I do that? How did I get here, right? Mm -hmm. Um, She says, if you're strategic, you can find ways to keep your networks fresh and your skills sharp even as you slow down, move laterally and even backward for a while. So again, from my personal experience, my time in Silicon Valley was was really focused on online marketing, which when I started out, because I'm a little bit old now, was like MSN keywords and Yahoo. And like, <laughs> so those, mm-hmm. those particular skills are no longer relevant, 
but I like her her idea of like keeping your networks fresh and you're gonna and and I I could never go back into online marketing per se right now, but you know I like I said I think even though I leaned back and stepped out of that particular discipline, you know I didn't step out of it entirely. I went to an advertising mm-hmm. agency, I went to a small company, and you know did did, did different things and. Even in running nonprofits, um, I feel like I, I tried to stay in the game. And so the fourth um, thing that she, fourth principle she recommends in career planning is another thing that we, we've done. She says, um, it's, she calls them seesaw marriages. So take turns being the breadwinner and the lead parent. So again, my husband and I haven't done that perfectly, but, you know, as I said, there are times when, you know, his work certainly takes precedent, but there are times when my work takes precedent as well. I just love the way she she concludes with those um, four principles for for planning a career in in a um, complicated uh, and long lifespan that we get to enjoy today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love those too. All of those that you shared, the scenarios, and I mean, just hearing some of those scenarios just makes your blood pressure go up just <laughs> like totally. the kid with the fever and the summer camp and your child's melting down. And oh, wow, I just so appreciated her honesty. And she talks a lot about her own family, too, and is very um, transparent and willing to be vulnerable about, you know, the the real messiness of human life. And I appreciated that. And then and then, yeah, those those four questions to ask yourself and, and principles to work with. And as you said, yeah, you did kind of uh, refer to what I've said before that I, for example, I did drop out entirely and I wish I had read this book. I, I mean, I guess I wish it had been written and available to me and that I'd found it a lot earlier because as you said, I think her main point is you want all the information and you want to have thought through, you know, the possible consequences and so that, so that each one of us, you know, single, married, you know, having families that we can make informed decisions from a place of empowerment and a place of, you know, yeah, having information so that we can do what feels right in that moment and not just, as you said, just kind of like go along a path and and then eventually say, wait, how to get here? And that is definitely what what I encountered in my own life. So um, I'm going to have my kids read this book, the girls and the boy, you know, to really think about these, you know, these scenarios ahead of time to have have their eyes open. So as we wrap up, Nylan, what would you say is a main takeaway from the book? I just love that equation that she sets up of competition um, plus care rather than competition versus care. I think that that's such an important way to shift our understanding of what makes a a complete life because you don't have to have one person doing each of those. It's not, you know, the female care versus the male competition. You don't have to have each person in a pair doing one of those things to benefit the other. Um, Those those can exist in the same person and they're only enhanced and sort of, um, you know, made, made more manageable and more enjoyable when we get to share the load with another person. Uh, we don't have to break it down perfectly. Um, we actually get to kind of toss the ball back and forth to each other. And I, I think that that's a beautiful way of reshaping that paradigm. Hmm. Fantastic. I'll share a takeaway too. 
one of my takeaways was that concept from chapter six, that the next phase of the women's movement is a men's movement. Something that just happened in my personal life just about a week ago is that my 15-year-old daughter, Sophie, pointed out that this summer, so we normally have, um, for our kids, we have a chore wheel that has like dishes, laundry, taking care of the pet and outside. And then what's the other one? Oh, like floors and counters. So four kids, four chores, and they just rotate on a wheel. So everybody has has a turn doing that chore for a week. Mm -hmm. But we've been traveling a ton this summer. And so we haven't had our chore wheel and we've been out of kind of just out of our routine. And in the absence of a structure, I've just been kind of, you know, flying by the seat of my pants and just like getting stuff done as as we need it done. And Sophie just said to me last week, she said, mom, you always ask me to wash the dishes and you always have Stone take out the trash. Hmm. And she was right. I, I, I do. Like in the absence of that chore wheel, if, if I'm left to me, I totally revert to gendered chores. And um, Anne-Marie Slaughter mentions that in that she said in her family too, with her sons, she, she found herself assigning them more traditionally masculine jobs and so it was funny to read that and think, oh, dear, I just got accused of the same thing and, and rightly. And so one of my takeaways was we're all like really, at least in this family, a work in progress and in kind of undoing those scripts that we've absorbed over the course of our lives. And so I really appreciated um, reflecting on those things and, and realizing there's a ways, to, a, a ways to go in clearing the way for, you know, I do think it matters for my son to grow up helping me cook, help you know, to, mm-hmm. to feed the people in our family and to wash the dishes as well as taking the trash out and to, you know, to do more nurturing work. And and I do hope my my boy grows up that if he said to me, you know, I, I want to be a full time parent, that that he would feel confident and confident in his masculinity, that he would be able to do that. And I do think there is a ways to go. And. I really appreciate you pointing out that other way of viewing the chapter, which I hadn't thought of, but um, that the men's movement needs to be men also looking around them and, and making sure that any door that is open to them, that they look behind them and make sure it hasn't closed behind them so that women aren't getting through, um, that we do need to be looking around and, and helping the whole human family flourish and move forward. So I think those would be my takeaways. But that brings us to the end. And Nylan, wow, thank you so much for reading this book with me. Thank you for those brilliant insights and sharing your stories. I I just had a great time having this conversation with you. Thanks so much. Thank you. I had a great time too. And thanks to listeners. Thanks for being with us. On our next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will be reading the book Girls and Sex. Navigating the Complicated New Landscape by Peggy Orenstein. Orenstein is a local author in the Bay Area, and she interviewed high school and college students in my neck of the woods in California for this book within the past few years. So it felt very familiar to me, probably to you too, Nyland, since you have deep connections to the Bay Area too. And both of us have three daughters, as, as you yep. mentioned. So 
This is, I, I think, really a must read for anyone who wants to understand teenage girls and young women today and in today's landscape. I listened to this book on Audible and then I, I read it, but it is available on Audible for listeners who like to consume their books that way. And I really recommend listening or reading this one. It's, it's a really important book. And then we'll be excited to have you join us for the discussion of Girls and Sex by Peggy Orenstein next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Mm-hmm.